Hello and welcome back to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. I've had COVID for most of the past week, and while the current variant has been relatively kind to me, it's still a nasty little monster. Avoid it if you can. Today, I'm talking to one of my favorite people, Donald Mackay, a loquacious lawyer from Johannesburg who runs just about the most productive business I know of. It's called XA Global Trade Advisors, and his clients are the many companies that import into South Africa or export from it. Many of them do both. He advises them about the duties they have to pay and the rebates that they may be due. Trade is an exhausting business, and you have to have the mind of a minx or a fox to keep track of it. I've never learned more about the economy of my country than I have from talking to Donald Mackay over the past few years. What he's recently done is to produce for the first time an actual list of the outstanding duties or cases, applications, not acted upon uh, by the fiscus, or not collected by the fiscus, and the total value of duties collected for the importation into South Africa are things that we don't actually even make here. In other words, the cost to industry of protecting an industrial sector that doesn't exist here. Needless to say, all of this is the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition under Minister Ibrahim Patel and the International Trade Administration, ITAC, which actually levies the charges and duties that business has to pay to trade and which may only be theoretically independent. Donald, it's good to talk to you. I love the list. And you say you're going to produce it twice a year. But can I ask you my first question this way? To what problem is your list of open cases, i.e. application still awaiting resolution, to what problem is it a solution? Yeah, so I think the problem we have is administrative rather than policy-based. So we we have a process that an application goes through for any kind of duty change, whether up or down. That process seems to be broken at the moment. And the end result of that is, is quite profound. So there's the potential for a, a quite a large collection of duties by SARS if, if duty increases were put through without any judgment on whether that's a good or bad idea. And likewise, um, a significant amount of money paid over to SARS, which shouldn't be because the products are not available locally or are, but not in sufficient quantities. And what I'm hoping to accomplish with the first and following iterations of this report is to tell companies, firstly, you're not alone on this list. This is a worryingly long list. But secondly, to kind of just track the progress, I, I really hope the process gets fixed because this is an important thing that's happening to uh, look at trade policy. And I wanted to quantify it so that we weren't just talking about a hypothetical situation, but we could lock in some numbers. We could understand the scale of the problem and what the economic impact is. So in your in your experience is 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 the you say you say the system or the process is broken at the moment or maybe broken seems to be broken is it getting worse not better yeah you know, it does it does appear to be getting worse which of course is quite alarming um but when this process doesn't work it it has a couple of important implications so the slower the process becomes, the, the decisions that sit behind these applications, whether they be for expanded uh, capacity, possibly some new investment that will go into additional factory capacity, these sorts of decisions are also delayed along with the, the administrative delay in the process. 
ultimately, when the process gets delayed far enough, um, there's good reason to think that people simply stop participating. So why would you make an application for duty relief if there's no domestic production? If you think it's going to take three years, five years for that matter to be resolved. So many people will simply opt out of the system. And I believe that also translates into the much more important number of less investment in the economy, less employment, and all of the other knock-on effects. Because it's like one of those sort of Russian dollars, isn't it? I mean, you, it, this issue exposes the economy in a way. It tells you a much bigger story about the economy than merely the number um, or the amount of duty somebody may have been forced unfairly to pay. Yes. Just explain that to our listeners a bit. Sure. So you have kind of, a, I guess, at the outer layer of all of this, we, we have a localization policy and kind of the, the most important component of that localization policy, irrespective of which side you sit on, is industrial policy. And then the main kind of lever that is used around industrial policy is trade policy, which ultimately translates into mostly into duties, um, could also translate into other things like export bans, these sorts of things. But the primary instrument is duties. So whatever happens around localization is very tightly tied to what happens with trade policy. So what we've got at the moment is a very, very vocal and very hard drive for more localization. But the primary instrument used for localization is simply not working very well at the right. moment. Is broken. So let's take a couple of um, cases that I was particularly interested in. One, and they're each, they're each slightly different. The first one was a company uh, which we would know well, uh, people who bought uh, Plascon, I think, from Barlow World, uh, Kansai Plascon. So they, um, they imported a product called titanium dioxide, um, and they imported a lot of it. It was worth one, uh, almost 1.1 billion rand, and they paid over 100 million rands in duty to import this. And yet, there is no source in South Africa of titanium dioxide. Why would anybody, why would you charge somebody a duty to import something that doesn't already, you're not, in other words, you're not protecting anything. You are simply charging the duty because you can. Yeah, so there's, a, there's an interesting legacy around the titanium dioxide duty. So they, there used to be a producer called Huntsman, which I believe is an American company that used to produce titanium dioxide in South Africa maybe 15 years ago, that plant closed down. The duty has been there ever since. Now, although Plascon took the lead in applying for duty relief, they're not the only company that used the product. So titanium dioxide is the stuff you put into paint or into plastic to make it okay. white. So that's, uh, you would think, a fairly important pigment that's used in all kinds of um, production processes. Now, the titanium dioxide hasn't been produced here for a long time. There, there is a, a company which has been threatening to produce titanium dioxide for a while. Um, I believe the IDC is also funding that company, but the production is not online. So this application was made many years ago. 
and it's kind of been sitting in the process. In the intervening period, uh, enormous amounts of duty have been paid on titanium dioxide, but you can't actually buy titanium dioxide locally, which means that money it serves absolutely no purpose. Now, it could be that there is an attempt to, to extract some kind of concession out of the applicant companies. But then that kind of brings up yet another problem, which is Plascon are the applicant here, but they're not yeah. the only user. So if you were to approach Plascon and say to them, I'd like a reciprocal commitment from you, um, I'm assuming Plascon's view would be, well, why should we give the commitment? Uh, Dulux, I, I would assume, would also import um, they would also yeah. import the titanium dioxide, so would many producers of plastics. And so in this process, this thing has simply gotten stuck and the duties have been paid and you still can't buy the titanium dioxide locally. So, yes, it's a, it's, it's a perfect example of a duty that shouldn't be here. And if, they, if there is going to be a producer and that producer is up and running, um, that's fine, then consider protecting the producer at that point. But for years now, an enormous amount of money has been paid over, which is simply being extracted out of the industry yeah. that consumes that pigment and uh, doesn't appear to achieve any purpose. And which would, which would partly explain why paint is so expensive, or good paint anyway. I, I would guess so. Yeah, I'm not sure how much of the value of a litre of paint is titanium dioxide, but certainly it would be yeah. inflating the cost of that and anything else unnecessarily. But what's interesting is that is that is that Plascon has applied for a rebate on the 103 million rand that it paid, but the others not that you you haven't listed any other uh, um, applications. I presume they don't exist. This would be an exhaustive list. Yeah. So so Dulux has just paid the paid the duty and got on with it. So the duty paid is the duty paid on titanium dioxide, um, not not necessarily all covered by Plascon. So the question yeah. would be, Plascon took the step and and made the application. Um, why the others didn't participate is you know it's, it's kind of an unknown. Yeah. But if the rebate were to be created, everybody importing the titanium dioxide would benefit from the relief. Of course, yeah. there's no ability to backdate these rebates, which means all of the the capital expended on this on this duty is not recoverable historically. So yeah, yeah. all of that is just gone, yeah. and you can potentially recover into the future. And the important thing about the list, of course, Donald, is that you you you're basically saying that this table shows applications for duty removals or rebates of duty where the investigation is run beyond the target of six months. So these are overdue. Um, yes. Uh, and 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 that's that's generally your point here. I mean, you're saying, listen, the, all these investigations would take a reasonable amount of time if people were doing their jobs properly and efficiently. But you're suggesting that they don't, right? Because the system or the process, you say, is breaking or broken or breaking. Um, and these things run over time, and that's the that's where the damage gets done because it's unpredictable, and business then has to operate with more or less certainty, or even less certainty than it already does. Yeah. So the the uncertainty is really the big problem, and so there there are three kind of legs to this process. There's there's the ITAC leg, which is the bit of the process that's visible. So this is where you go to ITAC and you say, if you're Plascon, please give me duty relief on titanium dioxide. 
if ITAC says that's a great idea, they pass it on to the DTIC, particularly to Minister Patel, who then has to decide on what he wishes to do. So ITAC don't make the decision. Let's assume he approves it. He then sends it off to the Minister of Finance and says, please implement this. And then it's up to the Minister of Finance to implement it. Now, every part of the process after it leaves ITAC is completely opaque. So all we can see at the point when an, when an investigation is finished, we can see what date did ITAC send their recommendation to right. the Minister of Trade. But we're unable to see what happens afterwards. So that is just, we have no no idea you know, other than our own experience. Yes. So this this um, um, this application was made in 2020, uh, round about. I'm just trying to guess. I'm going seven months back from September, um, which I'm, is going to get me to about February. This has been hanging out there since so February 2020, and with no resolution to it. So it's either sitting in the Department of Trade, Industry, and Competition, or sitting with the Treasury. Um, yes. And what I wanted to ask you, Donald, just talk to me a little bit about ITAC. I, my understanding was that it was supposed to be an independent body, but it's clearly not. Yeah, so that that independence is the kind of same independence that you would have with the Competition Commission. So it's sort of kind of independent, but not really. Um, they still sit on the budget of DTIC. Salaries are still paid through that budget. So mm. um, legally, they're meant to be independent, but I think... We, we've all seen how many of these independent institutions have become increasingly politicized. I don't think ITAC is, is immune to that at all. Yeah. yeah. The 103 million rand owed or claimed by, by, by Kansai, um, where is it now? Is it, does it sit in a bank account or has it been, is it, you know, is it, is it gone, paid salaries or do whatever, yeah. do whatever the Treasury, who gets this money, the Treasury or the DTIC? No, so it goes, it, it's paid like any other tax, mm. it goes into the National Revenue Fund, okay. same as your income tax, PAYE, yeah. and it's distributed according to the budget. So it would be like getting blood from a stone to get it back again. What what do you have to do? You Do you take them to court? Well, I, I don't think you can recover the money that's being paid over. So that kind of makes it the worst part. And I also don't think you have a you have a legal challenge because the legislation doesn't set a timeline. Um, you know, we've proposed in our report that we, we have a cutoff for these cases so that we introduce more certainty. We say, look, at the end of 18 months, uh, even if you are rejected, at, at least you have a decision. Yeah. But right now, the, the neither of the ministers or ITAC have a legal obligation to complete an investigation within a particular time frame. And so these cases can go on for yeah. years and years without being resolved. Yeah. So you, you end up applying for a rebate, which in other words is a sort of a discount on, on, on next time you import. Well, the, the rebate is kind of, you should think of it as a, as a reason to not pay the duty pending a yeah. particular event. So, for example, the event could be this new factory opening. The new factory runs up, and at that point, they say, we're not going to give you the rebate anymore. Yeah. But you have the relief yeah. in the intervening period, at least. Then let's come to another n another case on on on, um, on your Annex A, um, Duferco steel processing. As far as I know, Duferco is near, sited near Saldana Bay, 
was near the old um, uh, uh, Isco plant there. Um, um, uh, it is uh, operating uh, on very thin margins at the moment. I speak every now and again to the company. Um, they imported flat roll products of iron or non-alloy steel with a width of 600 millimeters or more in coils, not further worked that not further work than hot roll pickled of a thickness of less than three millimeters for the use in the automotive industry, right? So we know that they, this is what uh, Deferco does. It's an Italian company that made a big investment in South Africa. They imported yeah. almost four and a half billion rands worth of this product and paid f almost half a billion rand of that in um, duty. Um, and as we know, uh, there's some pretty stiff steel import duties uh, um, imposed recently by the Department of Trade and Industry and Competition to protect the local steel industry, but they're not doing much to protect Deferco. How does Deferco get out of this, or how does it get the kind of rebate or justice that it needs? It could make a contribution to the country, um, and it's in a part of the world where you know there's not many jobs around. Um, AMSA, which is the which is ArcelorMittal, formerly ISCOR, has closed its plant in Soldana. Um, what happens to Deferco? Yeah, that's uh, that's just not a good story. So I think I don't know what happens to Deferco, but but what this does demonstrate is our trade policy is kind of driven by government attempting to decide who the winners will be. So if you look at the steel case, it's a perfect example where you have to decide between one manufacturer or another. That's the, the way the game has been set up here. So if you want to protect the one, it is going to come at the cost of the other. That's simply unavoidable. And so if you look at steel particularly, what's occurred is we've had these increases in in steel, that process really kicked off in 2016 in a big way. And lots and lots of duties were imposed on all kinds of primary steel products. What's happened over time is just this enormous set of rebates that have been created to try to deal with all of the, the products which are not available locally. So we've gone from no duties on primary steel and those duties were first taken away around 2005 or 2006. Then in 2016, they put back in. Then they have to create all of these rebates because steel is in everything. And so now we've got over 50 rebates that have been created, some of which are incredibly complicated technical rebates, which I would think nobody at SARS has an ability to interpret. And so compounding this problem is You've now put duties in place. You've created a set of very complicated rebates, and you've also opened the door for all kinds of circumvention of these duties because of the complex rebates. It's, it's inconceivable to me that someone at SARS could look at a product and understand the technicalities of that product. So for steel, you've now created a double problem. You've picked a winner which you know, may or may not prove to be the right in one. Our, in our case, sorry, in, in our case, Donald, that's AMSA, right? Yes, it is AMSA. It's essentially yeah. AMSA to some degree on some products, companies like Sport, yeah. but yeah, essentially it's yeah. AMSA. Why, and and the, you say the rebates are created. Who creates the rebates? Is there a set of rules that then comes out where 
where ITAC says, all right, well, we'll give you a rebate under the following conditions. Yeah, so companies would, would go to ITAC and they would describe their particular problem. They would say, give us a rebate. In fact, there's one that was created very recently, um, just after we'd already wrapped up the report on a whole lot of steel products. And, and that's kind of even tells the story a little better because the application for that rebate actually came from the DTIC. So the DTIC themselves said, we're worried that ArcelorMittal can't supply the full range of products. And they they brought an application to ITAC, which then published it on an urgent basis last year. Yeah. And some of those rebates have now been created. So even the DTIC themselves have involved themselves both with the protection of the primary steel industry, AMSA, but then also with undoing that protection for the downstream industry. So it's become incredibly complicated. Yeah, because according to your list, they've got a rebate application for some for yeah, 630 million rands worth of rebate. Yeah. And and why is why would that be still so slow? Why can they not push that one along? Oh, good heavens, I mean it's theirs, it's their um it's their application. Is it that broken? I don't, I don't know, Peter, why so I, I really, I mean, I sound like I have no idea what I'm talking about, but mm. I really have no idea why that took so long or why any mm. of these take mm. that long. Because yeah. in most of the cases, these decisions are, are taken by ITAC. Sometimes they're a little bit late, but seldom are they very late. And so most of these are sitting with the DTIC or, or with finance. We, um, no, we, don't, we don't know. We don't and know. How did we? What do we think? Well, we can leave the DTRC. We know who, what they're about, and and we probably know a little bit, you know, about the treasury. What? How would you evaluate the sort of, you know, the worthiness uh, or effectiveness of ITAC itself? Is it a well-run little outfit? Yeah, I think, you know, that's a it's a tough question to answer. Like anyone else, they have problems, but for the most part, um, I I think ITAC works a lot better than we think. And, you know, I am critical of ITAC, but I think ITAC will fill an important function. The, 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 the procedural failures happen in large part for two reasons, I think. The one is a very direct political involvement in the workings of ITAC, that they're not inherently a political body. And I don't think they operate well with the, with a heavy hand of interference. But yeah, I think I think ITAC do better when left to get on with the technical work that they have to do, rather than also attempting to fulfil a political mandate. Because there's an interesting, there was an interesting uh, document circulating um, a couple of months ago. I remember it was a draft of an agreement between the DTRC, uh, Department of Trade, Industry, and Competition, and sort of blank company. And what it seemed to be was an offer to companies. Uh, which which went along the lines of if if you um, if you hire more people, you create more jobs and invest, we will we will impose duties on your um, competitors who rely on imports. Um, do you know the document I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah, so this is yeah. reciprocal agreement. The, exactly. I mean, it was an outrageous thing to even draft um um both parties commit to work with each other in good faith and to combine their efforts to secure a, a stronger competitive xxx energy fill in fill in the blanks and um 
it you know the the uh, the company the company acknowledge that it that it you know that it commits to the following that price increases will be driven by cost based increases and not to increase margin by more than the consumer price index uh, um, should the company uh, seek to vary the, its commitments or inform the DTRC in writing and make a proposal for the modification, etc. It's just it was an, to me an outrageous document. Do you know whether it ever anything ever happened? Did it has he has anybody ever signed one of these things? So I I know a lot of people have refused to sign it. Um, I no. I would assume that some companies have signed it, and in fact the the game appears to be that what you do is you you diminish the commitments you make so that you know that they're manageable. And then that way you can you can kind of live with the commitment. But I would think for most companies that would be that would be a very very risky document to to commit to. Yeah. It's also concerning because underpinning that document is this idea that you can you can generate economic growth, you can generate employment by contracting people into behaviour. Um, there's just there's zero indication that that works, and so I I do fear that this is part of the reason for the delays that we see. I don't see any upside to it, um, and I'm also not sure if you end up breaching the agreement, uh, possibly because of some other event. You know, who knows? COVID, Ukraine, any of these things yeah. which could have caused companies to breach. Uh, what happens at that point? I mean. There's no point in signing the agreement if government's not going to take action. But if government begins taking people to court, you have to think that that's going to turn off the investment tap even faster than we've managed to turn it off yeah. so far. Yeah, it is extraordinary, you know, Donald, how how, how poorly uh, central planning or central control of the of industry of industry anyway is turning out. Um, uh, Turning out to uh, to to be, um, uh, Brian Patel recently had to lift duties on 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 chicken imports, um, and he there'd been some pretty stiff dump, anti-dumping duties. These weren't even normal, you know, WTO duties. This was this was some of them were over a hundred percent on chicken parts from you know Ireland and I I forget where they were now Norway and Brazil. Um, but because of the economic crisis uh, and the way the cost of living is increasing, he had to lift to those duties so that these imports could come in. And what, in effect, what you what you're doing by you know by importing cheap cheaper foods like chicken is you are importing cheap inflation as well as some you know some affordable nutrition. But my question was, if the duties had to be lifted in a time of economic crisis, what good were they doing in the first place? Yeah, that's a that, that's a question I struggle with too. Um, so what 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 the minister did with with chicken is for the very first time, uh, public interest was actually considered. So it is interesting if it's if it's not in the public interest now, um, when is it in the public interest? And also, how many other products? If it's uh, if you've got a duty on on chicken that's been lifted for now. Um, why are we not also lifting yeah. the duties on frozen chips or on steel products or any other product? It, so it's a it's a very strange decision, I think. Um, yeah, they. I mean, yeah. the one 
the one that comes most to mind is electronic vehicles. You know, if um, you pay an enormous duty to 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 buy a um, an electric car in South Africa, I mean, I know that there are not many charging points available, but that as a buyer, that's my business. I mean, I can't go around complaining about you know for not being able to charge anywhere on the N one between Joburg and Pretoria, uh, Joburg and Cape Town, but but that's surely my business. Um, and and you know you, we've got an electric we've got an electricity crisis in this country, um, and certainly a fuel price crisis. So a lot of people would, I suspect, you know, put out the money to 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 buy to buy electric cars if um, uh, if they were able to. But we seem to be protecting um, the local car industry, which is entirely foreign owned, um, uh, from an inevitable change in technology. Sounds crazy. I agree. And then lastly, he's trying to ban, this is his, I'd be talking about him, but Brian Patel is now trying to ban, or the DTRC is trying to ban. I, I don't know whether the ITAC is involved in this or the Treasury, trying to ban the export of scrap. Now, I understand it's a very emotional issue because people, people just assume that the railway infrastructure in South Africa has been sold to you know, d into Dubai or Thailand or India or wherever um, uh, the big scrap export markets are. But it's it's already almost impossible to export scrap. Why ban it completely? I mean, there is you know that you cannot you cannot um, sell scrap to anyone outside of South Africa until all local um, consumers of scrap have had their pick of what you've got what's the what is what does a ban add to that yeah i think it's we it's very confusing to me we, we in fact we had a ban on scrap metal in 2020 for three months and yeah. nobody remembers the three months when nothing was stolen so i think there's there's very little evidence that a ban would work um, but a ban also makes the assumption that the goods stolen are ending up in a container on its way to India or wherever it might be. Um, but even that, there's no evidence of. So if we look at things like copper, th there's been this enormous drop in the exports of copper scrap. So very little indication that if you're stealing a, a bit of copper cable, that it is ending up in a container and being exported as scrap. If it is being exported, it's probably being processed in some way locally. Um, and then once it's processed, of course, it's denatured. Nobody knows you know, that it's an ESCOM or Transnet cable, and it is it is simply gone. So I would I, I think the export ban is not the way to address the theft problem, but that's not the only recommendation in that gazette. And there are indeed some very good suggestions which I think would work, such as banning the trade of of scrap for cash, for example. Yeah. Um, so there are other things in there which I think could work. But I don't think there's any reason to believe the export ban will work, um, despite the fact that it'd be quite devastating for the industry. How would you take uh, cash out of the the life of a you know a guy who just collects scrap metal on a little trolley and and hauls it off to a scrapyard? Though I mean, at some stage, cash would have to change hands. I mean, it, it's what I worry about, and I know that. You know, scrap is not generally part of what we call the sort of waste picking um, uh, um, sector, but there are 
you know, minor merchants or minor collectors of scrap who may not even have bank accounts. Um, how do you how do you work around them? Yeah, so my understanding is that that most of the larger dealers already have stopped or, or put very tight limits on how much scrap they can purchase each day for cash. I think mm. that there are probably more people banked in that sector, is at least my understanding, than we think. Okay. But the trading cash um, is not just about the guy who arrives with, with the trolley and a little bit of scrap on, but also the fact that you know guys can be arriving with truckloads and being paid in cash. So it's not it's not just the small trader yeah. that is impacted. But it's a, it's a big it's a big talking point in South African society. I mean, why is our what is happening to our infrastructure? It is being stolen. It is missing. Is it? And if it's not being exported, who's buying it? Yeah. So I, I, I have I have no idea who's buying it. I mean, of course, if we knew, we we be able to go and arrest them. But I have no idea who's buying it. I I did I ever come across an interesting statistic this weekend that over a, a million meters of copper cable was stolen from Transnet in the last year, which is a truly astonishing number. And yeah. I, I don't know where it ends up, but one must assume that it's at least a portion of it is getting laundered through furnaces and these sorts of things. So someone is melting it down. Um, and that's also quite ironic because we've created an artificial market for smelting copper by the imposition of the price preference system, which forces down the domestic price of copper and then the export duties on yeah. copper. And so there's this interesting little arbitrage that's occurred in between where people are setting mm. up smelters to buy copper, melt it down, and then kind of export it as a one and a half ton block of copper or trade it as a one and a half ton block. So that's a product that is worth less than the raw material. But the very artificial structure of the market has made it appealing to create that. The next thing would be to ban the export of billet then of, of those blocks or whatever. Yeah, so th that's not even a joke, Peter. O on the list of items identified um, this time for banning is not just the items from last time, which are kind of more uh, scrap related, but also things like unwrought aluminium. So about 21 billion rands worth of unwrought aluminium was exported in the last year. And that is not a product that's produced out of scrap. So the implications are potentially far more concerning than even just to the scrap sector at this point. Because you could end up banning everything and still losing your infrastructure because basically um, you're approaching it the wrong way around. You know, I mean, countries... It's almost like the drug war, isn't it? You know, the countries that have done the best against drugs are the people who've legalized them, rather than trying to clamp down, because all you do is you create more criminal enterprise and smarter criminal enterprise. Anyway, Donald, I love this stuff, but we've sadly run out of time. And thank you so much for being with me today and for the work that you do. That's Donald Mackay. And thank you for listening. I'll be back next week at the same time. So until then, please stay safe and keep warm. And yeah, avoid crowds. Bye-bye. Thank you.